meeting is being recorded. Okay, so I want to um, dedicate this class to Rafua Shalema, to Mordechai Shammai ben Elka Miriam, and to Rifka Gittel Bas Yehudis. And of course, to anybody who needs a Rafua, Hashem should send a Rafua to all of those who need Rafua. I'm sure we all know people who do. Okay. So today, what I want to do, because I want to please everybody, and I know, you know, everybody's different. So I can't help but, like, pay attention to the Parsha this week, because it happens to be my favorite Parsha with my favorite line in it. And I think anybody who's a Balchuva or a convert or anything like that, or anybody who's changed their lives in any real dramatic way can really relate to the very first Pasuk in this week's Parsha, which is the Parshas of Lech Lecha. And uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the Midah of Bitachon, of trust in Hashem, something that we've explored before, but it's time to do that again, because, again, one of the principles of learning Musr or learning anything in terms of character development is that you're never done. And, you know, you need to always be going over the ideas and the principles so that we bring them into the forefront of our minds and they don't slip back into the back of our consciousness. You know, it's kind of like dieting, right? When you are, you know, paying money to Weight Watchers. So it's right up there at the front of your brain, you know, what you're going to put in your mouth every day. But when you're not doing some kind of program or something, very often it just slips back and gets lost, you know, and, and we get out of control again. So, so too with character development, we have to be constantly going over and trying to integrate what we may understand up here, bring it down into our thoughts. First of all, our, you know, beginning with our thoughts, which will affect our emotions. And of course, our actions will follow from there. And the last thing I want to do is talk about the idea of a test, which is very much a part of Avraham's life and all of our lives, that this world is a world of tests, as the rabbi teaches us. This world is not the uh, main destination for us. This world is just a corridor, as it says, into the palace. Don't get confused and think you've already arrived at the palace because that is not this world. If this were the palace, there'd be a lot of questions that we'd be a very difficult place to enjoy completely and fully the way that, you know, the palace is supposed to be a place of total enjoyment. So the corridor is the place where we do our work, where we grow ourselves, where we hopefully are able to overcome the obstacles and challenges that each one of us is sent specifically for our soul tikkun, for our soul development. And the more we understand this and the more we know this, the easier it is for us to recognize when we're in a test and be able to overcome it. Okay, so first of all, this week's Parsha, like I said, starts with the word Lech Lecha. And they, they, these words are actually considered to be one of the first of 10 tests that Avram Avinu is given in his road towards becoming the major foundation stone of the Jewish people. And the very first thing that the Parsha says on the very simple level is, which means 
that Hashem is, Hashem is telling Avram he has to get up and he has to go. He has to leave his land. He has to leave his birthplace and he has to leave the house of his father. And the way that the, these three places are situated are that they are considered to be a test in ascending order. So the, the, the first test is leave your country, right? Now, God is saying, you know, the country that you live in is not such a good influence on you. There's all kinds of things that your government perhaps may stand for or not stand for. And there's certain things that are certainly not in the uh, spirit of morality or, you know, what the Torah would say is, is the way to live. And therefore, you got to get out of your country. That's the first thing. And then we go to a more difficult test. Now you have to get away from your relatives. You have to get away, so to speak, from your community, from the people that, you know, you feel a part of on a larger scale. You have to remove yourself from there. And finally, God tells him you have to get away from your father's house. Now, of course, there's nowhere where we're more influenced or molded or formed than by the home that we grow up in, right? Nature and nurture. Right. We know that nurture is a big part of how it affects our nature. So God is basically telling Abraham that if you want to become everything that you can be, you need to get up and go. But the word that the rabbis discuss more than any other in this Pasuk is the re is the fact of this word lecha. Right. If God, you know, we one of the principles of learning Torah is to know that every word is chosen very carefully. And if there's an extra word, then the rabbis are saying, dig here. Right. This this is not necessary. This is this appears to be superfluous. We don't need that. This extra word, lecha. of course, you know, just go. What is this lecha, which can be translated in a number of ways? So I just want to um I looked at Rabbi Jonathan Sachs last night, and he says a lot of wonderful things about this. But basically, again, the very first Rashi on this word says that it's saying, go for you. And Rashi there says that it means the superfluous lecha is saying, go for your own benefit and for your own good. Because if you stay here, you won't have children. If you stay here where you are, you won't become a great nation. So it's only by leaving all of this behind, so to speak, we have a saying in Hebrew, Mashana Mako, Mashana Mazal, right? That when you change your place, you can change your muzzle. You can change your, uh, if you like, fate, even though that's not really what mazal means, but you can change the flow of blessing that is coming down, it can come down on you in a way that it couldn't in the other place, okay? So Avram, God is saying you've got to get up and you've got to go because it's for your benefit, lecha, okay? The principle that we have here is that sometimes we have to give up our past to acquire a future. Something, again, that's very, very difficult to do, but it's something that Bali Chuva do. It's almost supernatural, and of course, Gerim also converts, and Abraham was the first convert, if you like, right? He was the first Hebrew, the word Hebrew from the word la'avor, ivri, which means to cross over. The reason he was called an ivri is because the rabbis say that he crossed over to the other side 
In other words, he stood alone against the entire world that was worshiping idols, that was involved in pagan idolatry and all kinds of immorality. And he stood alone against the world, so to speak, which is a posture that Jews have taken throughout history, standing alone, you know, and we get that strength from Avraham Avinu, the first Ivri, the first Hebrew, the first progenitor of the Jewish people. Okay, so sometimes we have to say goodbye to the past and leave the things behind that in this case mean the most to us, right? People, you know, the things that we're used to, maybe even the food that we grew up with. You know, I can't eat my Bubby's knishes anymore because I got more kosher than my Bubby. What am I going to do, right? It's not simple. It's not easy to be able to do this. And one of the ways that you're able to do it is by moving out of your environment and going to a new place. I always say about myself that I probably would never have been able to become a Balchuva had I just stayed in Toronto. That would really help was the fact that I left like Avram Avinu. I left to Israel where nobody knew me, where I had no past, and where I could basically decide who I wanted to be without anybody pointing a finger and saying, uh-uh, I knew you when. No, you can't do that. You can't change. We know where you came from. We know who you are, right? But this is why we have a saying also where it says, exile yourself to a place of Torah. That even the greatest Rabbanim would exile themselves. They would go wandering, right? They would leave their place that was comfortable and familiar in order to shake things up in order to create some kind of discomfort, get out of their comfort zone, to be able to remake themselves anew and to not see themselves viewed by, you know, their possessions, by who they're related to, you know, by all of the different things that make us very stuck in our image of ourselves. that a lot of time is because that's what other people expect us to remain. So this is what Avram Avinu did now. To be able to make this journey and to make this leap involves trust, which is what we're going to talk more about as we keep going. It involves trust in Hashem, obviously, more than just belief, more than just believing there's a God. It, it involves some kind of a leap, right? You know, they often call it a leap of faith, but I would call it a leap of trust, you know? You know God exists, but now you're going to literally jump into his arms and hope for the best, right? You're going to take that leap over the cliff and hope that there's something that's going to catch you. Because ultimately, no matter how far we can reach with our intellects, no matter how much we can know and you know all these programs that prove there's a God and prove that the Torah is divine and all of these different things, there's still going to be cognitive dissonance at the very end of where our minds end and faith begins. There's that gap. And that gap is what really proves that a person jumps into Hashem's arms and says, I've gone as far as my intellect can take me. And after this, I just have to jump. Because if I knew everything, then obviously I'd be gone. And God, you know, doesn't want us to be God. 
He wants us to be human beings who take that leap of trust. And from there, you know, all kinds of worlds open to us. All kinds of worlds open to us. We see the world in living color. I always say it's like uh, in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy, you know, leaves the black and white TV land of Kansas, right? And she enters the colored TV. I think maybe it was the first color movie or something or one of the first ones that came out where they started in black and white. And then the color came on and everything, whoo, right? So, you know, I mean... It's very a good mashal for anybody who's taken this journey of Lech Lecha, who's jumped from the black and white into the color and said, ah, I did it. I just walked through a wall. I don't know what happened, but I'm on the other side. And isn't it beautiful? And isn't it glorious? And isn't it, doesn't it, and isn't it uh, the opposite of chaos and randomness? and purposelessness okay and that is really what 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 happens okay so another um understanding of the word lecha lech lecha would be go for yourself and rabbi sack says because we know the word lech can also mean for right go for yourself and rabbi sack says that go for yourself means believe in what you can become so Avram Avinu and Sarai, their names were Avram and Sarai at this point in the Torah, right? They had already been um, collecting converts in the in where they were, right? They were already, so to speak, making souls, as the Torah says. They were converting people to monotheism, to monotheistic beliefs. But God was saying, this isn't good enough. This isn't big enough for you. You need to expand your sense of self expand your sense of what you're capable of and go for yourself, meaning believe in what you can become. Okay, another idea is, based on a medrash, go with yourself. Okay, which again means take your beliefs, take your way of life and your faith and scatter these ideas throughout the world. Now we know that when Avram left, of course, the idea was that he was like a nomad, and he pitched his tent, and his tent had four doors, and anybody coming from any side of the desert found a door open. He was the, you know, personification of Hachdasat Orchim, of welcoming guests, something that the Arabs who are famous for learned from the tents of Avraham through the son Yishmael, who's the progenitor of the Arab people, right? And basically, we Jews have experienced that because we have this idea, right? That whatever happens to the uh, patriarchs and matriarchs is a portent for the future for their children will happen again with us. So we as Jews were scattered all over the world. And Rabbi Sachs points out that one of the main reasons for that, as much as it was a consequence or a punishment, if you like, for the fact that we misbehaved in the land of Israel, we did not uh, keep our bargain to live in a holy land. You have to be a holy people. Otherwise, as the Torah says over and over again, I will spew you out. The land itself will vomit you out. So aside from that more negative 
interpretation. The positive is that Jews were scattered purposefully to spread the teachings of monotheism wherever they went. So, you know, the fact that the world knows the Ten Commandments, the fact that many of the religions claim our Bible as the bedrock of their faith, all of these things, the way a Jew behaves, being a light onto the nations, ultimately will come from Jerusalem. Ki mitzion teitze Torah. Out of, out of Zion will come forth the Torah and all the wisdom. But a necessary prerequisite was that the Jew wanders the earth, is scattered everywhere to spread the teachings of monotheism, which Baruch Hashem, many of us, you know, fell by the wayside on that uh, mission. But Baruch Hashem, there's always been a small remnant, as God promised. There will always be a remnant who will carry this torch throughout history and continue the message wherever they are. So that's the other idea. So go with yourself, take your beliefs, your way of life and your faith and scatter these ideas throughout the world. Um, okay, the third interpretation, lach lecha, go to yourself. And this is the idea that the Jewish journey is the journey to the root of the soul. Okay? And a story that uh, I'm sure you've heard before, but it's a story about a famous rabbi, Rav Zusha. So Rav Zusha, in the words of Rav Zusha of Hanapol, he says, when I get to heaven, they will not ask me, why were you not Moshe? They will ask me, Zusha, why were you not Zusha? Avram was being asked to leave behind all the things that make us someone else. For it's only by taking a long and lonely journey that we discover who we truly are. Go to yourself is another reading of the word Lech Lecha. I'm not afraid that God's going to ask me why I wasn't Sarah, Rivka, or Rachel. But what, fr what frightens me, as we learn from Rav Zusha, is why weren't you Devorah Vale? Why weren't you Marlene Baranek or Shelley Lindo or Penny Bowmile or Penny Canner? That is the question Rav Zusha says, or Chaya Bornstein, my, my new student and cousin, found out we're related, um, you know, from Brooklyn, from Sheepshead Bay. Um, you know, why, why haven't I become all that I can become? This is the most frightening of all questions. There's a great story like that. I can't remember who it was, a famous rabbi that overheard his parents speaking about him, basically saying that he's a loser, whatever, that he was, he came from a very holy family. I, I should, I should, I should get the details. But the idea was that he heard them basically saying, you know, we're pulling him out of yeshiva. He obviously does not have a cup. You know, we'll, 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 we'll send him to the local shoemaker. He'll learn a trade and that will be it. Now, the boy was listening to his parents talking about him through the door. And um, anyway, that morning, he decided the next morning that he's really going to apply himself. And, you know, basically, he became this huge rabbi who wrote this incredible sefer that everybody studies today. And, you know, when he got to heaven, you know, he realized that God was not going to, that, that, you know, he might have only come up there with some shoes that he had made. But instead, he came up with this safer and basically the idea that 
that we are so much more than what we think we are. And, you know, he, he made that journey to finding his true self. Okay. Um, a fourth interpretation is lech lecha, go by yourself. And here we have this idea that to be a child of Avraham is to have the courage to be different. So I'll just read you a little bit from here. I was supposed to screen share it with you, but somehow I didn't. I wasn't able to do it. But I'll just read you a little bit because it's so beautiful in the words of Rabbi Sachs. Go by yourself. To be a child of Avraham is to have the courage to be different, to challenge the idols of the age, whatever the idols and whatever the age. In an era of polytheism, it meant seeing the universe as the product of a single creative will and therefore not meaningless, but coherent and meaningful. In an era of slavery, it meant refusing to accept the status quo in the name of God, but instead challenging it in the name of God. When power was worshipped, it meant constructing a society that cared for the powerless, the widow, orphan, and stranger. During centuries in which the mass of mankind was sunk in ignorance, it meant honoring education as the key to human dignity and creating schools to provide universal literacy, etc., etc. Jews, wrote Andrew Marr, really have been different. They have enriched the world and challenged it. It's that courage to travel alone if necessary, to be different, to swim against the tide, to speak in an age of relativism, of the absolutes of human dignity under the sovereignty of God that was born in the words, Lech Lecha. To be a Jew is to be willing to hear the still small voice of eternity urging us to travel, move, go on ahead, continuing Avraham's journey toward that unknown destination at the far horizon of hope. Okay, I'm sorry, I would have liked to read that inside with you, but you get the idea. The courage to be different, the courage to withstand whatever the teachings all around us are. This is being a child of Avraham. This is being uh, going by yourself. Hashem is telling Avram that he can't stay where he is. He has to shake things up in order to accomplish a, our, his mission. So obviously not all of us can do this physically. We can't just, you know, put a note on the door of our house and say, leaving for two years, be back soon. You know, take care of yourselves. The food is in the fridge. There's some stuff in the freezer, you know, if you get hungry, you know. Most of us cannot do that. You know, many of us, I'm sure, would love to move to Eretz Yisrael, would yearn to be able to begin life anew and again. But that is not what we're able to do. But what we learn from this journey of Avraham is that we need to move internally. We need to wake ourselves up, wake up our thoughts, wake up our emotions and our actions, Right. This inner call, this voice of lech lecha, go to yourself, find out who you are, take a journey inside, right? Reverberates in every Jew, break habits, change our priorities, reassess our goals, take a look at our circle two people that we choose. Are they helping us along our journey or are they hindering us? Are they people who we can aspire to be like, or are they people who drag us down? 
right? Those are the things we can have some influence over. Now, of course, we know Circle One people, we can't change, but they're there for us to do our homework. They're the people Hashem chose because they give us the opportunity to change ourselves. The Circle One people, for those of you who don't know, are the people in our lives that we don't choose, okay? These are our immediate family, our brothers, our sisters, our, our, our relatives, our sisters-in-law, whatever they are, they're people that God put in our life because they're our homework. They're the people that make us greater if we do the work, right? Instead of blaming, we work, and instead of pointing, we work to develop ourselves. Somebody said there's four things in life that people need to survive. Food, water, air, and someone to blame. <laughs> okay. Anyway, the point is, it's yes, blaming is very easy. But as I've always said, when you point a finger at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. And the thumb is pointing up to Hashem because instead of asking, why is he doing this to me? Or why is she doing this to me? We're supposed to ask with the capital he and she. Why is he doing this to me? Why did he send this person into my life? What am I supposed to learn from this? What are the lessons that I'm supposed to learn from this? So the question is, how can I actualize my full potential, right? We know in last week's Parsha, the world was wiped out in 40 days. We know that from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, there are 40 days. What is so significant about the number 40? So 40 is always the number, what? Do you want to say something, Marlene? Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur is 10 days. Sorry, sorry, 40. Rosh Chodesh. Thank you for correcting okay. me. Rosh Chodesh Elul, when we begin this whole period of introspection. Thank you, Marlene. And we go to Yom Kippur is 40 days. There's 40 measurements of water in a mikvah, seahs, whatever that measurement is. 40 days and nights that Moses spent up on Mount Sinai, right? So the idea of 40 is the idea that, that a person can move from the potential to the actualization, okay? I mean, the Rambam says if you want to change a mita, a character trait that's really negative, you have to go to the extreme opposite. He says for 30 days, okay, that's just an aside. But for that chunk of time, in order to be able to come back to the middle, which is the middle path in that character trait, which is what we're supposed to strive for. But back to the number 40. 40 is also the time it takes for from conception until the uh, growing child becomes a viable fetus inside of the mother. So halakhically, that becomes a time when the child is seen as a real entity. Because again, this idea of going from potential to actualization happens at 40 days. So we've got the next 40 days, ladies, to think about what we're going to look at today and, and work on it. So what gets in our way when we want to work on ourselves? Well, for sure, self-limiting beliefs, right? That's not me. I can't do that. I'm not good enough. I always... I'm always like this. I've always been like this. Everybody expects me to be like this. You know, I can't change. Um, this is the way I am. You like it or lump it, right? Take a hike if you don't like it, because that's I'm not changing. That's the way I am. 
So this is not, uh, this is not a Jewish uh, way of thinking. We believe that every morning Hashem makes the sun rise anew. Every day, every second, God is willing, right, the world into creation. It's willing the world to, sorry, exist and continue. And every moment is a moment of renewal. So if we really understood that, we would understand that we're part of that universe that's constantly renewing itself. And that with Hashem helping us to renew ourselves, we can't fail. So we want to do more Pesach. We want to daven better. We want to take on more mitzvot. But there's so many obstacles in our way that paralyze us. So Musar, the study of Musar, character development, which, again, I'm quoting from this book that I just started reading again. Okay. Um, according to Musar, Rabbitson Felbrand says... The main obstacles to our character growth and our spiritual growth and our relationship with others and Hashem is our own character flaws. He writes, our mission in, in the world is to forge a relationship with Hashem. Hashem gifted us with huge variety of character traits which, as you know, ladies, we call our homer, right? The raw material that we're given at birth. But our task in this world is to get these under control and shape ourselves into the person we are able to become. Our tsura, as we said, right? The homer is this lump of clay that God gives us. He gives us our character strengths. He gives us our character weaknesses. Don't get all arrogant about your character strengths, right? Because you didn't make them. God gave them to you. And don't get start beating yourself up over your character deficiencies because those were also handed to you as a gift from God in order to work with to make yourself even greater, right? Who I am is God's gift to me, but who I become is my gift to God. So how do we know a Rebbitson Feldbrand asks, how do we know that the purpose of life is to perfect our character? So going back to the beginning of the Torah, we know that there's a source there in the Medrash where basically the angels have a big fight with God saying, what are you doing giving the Torah to man, to a lowly man made of flesh and blood? Leave the Torah up here in heaven with us, with the angels, right? After all, we're perfect. We have no free will. We, we are good soldiers in your army. We do everything that you ask of us. We are, we are the right people to give. We are the right creation to give the Torah to. And of course, God replies, or maybe it's, yeah, God asked the angels in the Gemara, Shabbos 88a, do you have jealousy amongst yourselves? Do you have a Yetzir Hara? Right? So, of course, the angels have to say no. And there's more to that. Do you have parents that you need to honor? Do you, do you work all week, you know, so that you need the Shabbat? And basically, it's through this back and forth that God, or there's another uh, medrash that has Moshe arguing with the angels, right? Where God, where the angels relent and they recognize that the Torah is was created and was given to man in order for him to correct his conduct. Okay. Just going back to something that we learned last year in the book, The Four Elements of Personality, we talked about the idea that there's really two worlds. There's the Olam Gadol, 
which is outside of us, the physical world, the external world, which of course we're supposed to be involved with and and develop it and and make it a better place, right? Make it a world of kindness, a world of love, a world of giving. But then we also have the Olam Katan, the world that's inside of us, the go-to-you world, go-to-yourself, right? And the Olam Katan is the microcosm of the Olam Gadol. Every person is a miniature universe, is what the Talmud teaches, is what Judaism says. We said last week, Bishvilini Vraha Olam. The entire world, we're supposed to say, each one of us was created for me, right? And, and therefore, I am a microcosm. If you save one life, you've saved the entire world. If God forbid you snuff out one life, you've destroyed the entire world. Why? Because each person is an entire world, is a whole world. So as much as the outer world is a place for our accomplishments and making an impact, our inward journey is that journey to improve our olam katan, the world inside of us through self-mastery, inner exploration, and discovering the godly self inside of ourselves, the pintaliyid, right? This is the great gift of imperfection that God gave us, right? I'm perfectly imperfect. Or as I used to say to my husband based on the Broadway show, which I never saw, but I love the title. I love you. You're perfect. Now change. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, but we could say that to ourselves too. Of course, I only said that in moments of total calm, you know. Um, anyway, so... Yes, and that is why we have something called the creation of darkness. Darkness is not just an absence of light, but darkness is Yotzer or Uborei Choshech. God created darkness. Darkness is a creation, not just an absence of light. Because again, light and darkness, light is always seen as positive. Darkness is always seen as negative. We mentioned last week that the Kabbalah teaches us that the light of the first day, that primal light that God made at the very beginning, let there be light, he or, was not the light from the sun that was created on the fourth day. It was a light, a great gift. This light was the great gift of an enlightened world that was so wonderful and blissful, but couldn't be enjoyed by anyone who didn't play an active role in building it. Hashem wants us to earn this light. We said that this light was put aside for the tzaddikim in the next world, but that light is available to us through the learning of Torah. It's there in the Hanukkah candles, the Or Haganuz, the light in the Hanukkah candles, again, we're taught, is this mystical, beautiful light that was there at the beginning of the world that was hidden away, okay? So Hashem wants us to earn this light because to get something for nothing is to eat the bread of shame. We call that the bread of shame. I can't remember what it's called. It's an Aramaic term. But when you get something without any effort, you can't appreciate it in the same way. God wants us to earn this light. He wants us to be a creator in this world and not a consumer. So life struggles and hardships uh, are the way that we become a creator. And when we overcome, we create successful human beings. So the last idea here is that we're placed in a world that is perfectly imperfect, 
and mankind as a whole is on a collective journey to take the world that the Almighty has intentionally made imperfect and try to perfect it in order for us to become true partners with God in building his world. And every one of us is part of this process. Your personal growth in your little Dalit Amos, in your little corner of the world, affects the world reaching its perfection. As somebody said, I think it was some Japanese philosopher, he said, between the words, oh, sorry. So change begins with the self. And of course, the way that we change is that is we exercise the free will that God gave us that is inherent in the idea of a man being created in God's image. As this philosopher said, that between the letters B and D is the letter C. B stands for birth, D stands for death, and C stands for choice. That that's really what our life is about. The choices that we make between the letters B and D is the letter C, which are the choices that we make. So looking inward is how we repair the world. Tikkun HaNefesh is perfecting our inner world. So the questions that we ask is, how well do I know myself? Do I know who I can be? What's my purpose in this world? A lot of times we have to look at our talents, at those things that we enjoy, because that points us in the direction of what our purpose and mission uniquely is in this world. And this is what leads to the greatest happiness. The fact that there's a creator who created the world with meaning and purpose, and he wants me to be his partner. Wow. He wants me to be his partner. He wants me to be able to help in growing and fixing and developing the world. Okay. Back to this. Okay. So we were saying the root of all negative character traits, which prevent us from spiritual growth and good relationships, is something called anochias. I mentioned this in another class. Anochias basically means me, 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 me. I am the center of the universe, right? And the antidote or the road to all perfection of character traits is the opposite of anochias, which is anivas, which is humility. Anochias is I shine the spotlight on me. I'm in the center of the world, right? In a negative way. The world was created for me in a negative way, right? Not in a accountable and responsible way. But the humble person takes the spotlight and shines it on others. Okay? And this is really the root of all bad mitos, which we're going to see. This, this obsession, this self-obsession with oneself. So, for example, anger, ka'as. Okay, we, we gave it, we had a whole sheer on that. For anybody who wants to listen to these things, they're on my podcast, Accessing Your Best Self. We've done anger, we've done hakpada, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it again. I think we're going to start our cycle all over again, right? We all need a refreshing course. It slipped back to the back of our brains. We've got to bring it forward again. Okay, so when we get angry, it's always the result of anochius. My sense of self was affected. How dare you say that to me? How dare you do that to me, right? 
When we think about that sentence, the you is very small, but the me is very large. How dare you do that to me? Me, right? How dare you? And so the antidote again is humility. So how do we attain humility? So there's many strategies, but the first one that really, if we had this one, we wouldn't need any other one at all. The first strategy, which I mentioned that I'm going to speak about is bitachon, trusting in Hashem. And this was something that Avraham, as we see in this week's Parsha, and all of the Avot and Imahot possessed. And many of their tests and their lessons, etc., are coming to teach us the power of bitachon, which gives us tranquility and serenity of the soul. Okay? So the more we work on trusting the Almighty, the more it can help us, not only in terms of our relationship with Hashem, but it spills over. It's a catch-all for everything in terms of our relationships with other people. Because what am I saying when I get angry? On a, on a, on a God level, I'm saying, Hashem, you made a mistake. This wasn't supposed to happen. What's going on here? right? It wasn't supposed to be like this. I wanted it to be this way. So we know, right, in the Parsh itself, in the very first line, God tells Avraham, I want you to leave everything, and I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you. And, you know, there's reasons why God doesn't tell him exactly the land. One is to keep him in suspense, to keep him excited, right? And, you know, the other is obviously it's not so easy to pick yourself up and go somewhere and not know where you're going. But even worse than that, if you want to call that a test of faith, is that when he gets there, we know there was a ra'av ba'aretz. There was a famine in the land. There was nothing to eat. So some say that this was another test and Avraham actually should have stayed there since that's where God sent him. But others disagree and say, no, he did the right thing. He went down to Egypt. And of course, we know what happened there. His wife was taken from him, etc. So would any of us be panicked? Would any of us say, what is going on, God? I just left everything. And you bring me to this country that has no food. And now I made an intellectual decision to find a place with food. And then this happens to me. Okay. But no, we see that Avraham proceeds with tremendous, not only emuna, which we said is belief in the abstract. Yes, there's a God. He's up there in the sky somewhere, but he has nothing to do with my life. Okay? Theoretically, he's there. Bitachon, however, is emuna made practical, meaning there is nothing that happens in my every single day that God is not involved in. Right? From my banging my little baby finger and going, ouch, ouch, right? To some wonderful phone call that tells you you won the lottery, okay? Which is so obvious that, oh, I'm so happy. Thank God, thank God, thank God this happened to me, right? That all of these things are equally coming from Hashem. And that is the point that we have to see God in everything. As I like to say, the popular phrase, Hakobi de Shamayim. Everything's in the hands of heaven. And normally people always, uh, you know, um, continue this by saying, except for the fear of God. 
right? Except for how much you're going to, but the word fear, yir'ah, comes from the same word lir'ot, which means to see. The more you see God, the more awe, awed you are. But the idea is everything is in the hands of heaven, except for whether you're going to see that everything is in the hands of heaven. Whether you're going to live your life as if everything was in the hands of heaven. Are you going to see it in your everyday? Okay? So Abraham passes the test. He stays calm, cool, and collected. Right? He makes a plan. He tells Sarai, tell them you're my brother. Tell them you're my sister. Okay? Because we can't be foolish about this. We have to continue. We have to live on because we have a mission after all. So we'll do whatever we can to keep going. Okay. Another bad mita, because we're not going to dwell on anger now, is jealousy. Now, jealousy is clearly a very horrible mita. It rots the bones, as King Solomon says, and we've spoke about this, right? If you want to not get osteoporosis when you get older, you better get rid of your jealousy, right? But the point is, is that this is rooted in a lack of bitachon, because what is the jealous person saying? It's not fair, right? I'm supposed to have that. Why do they have it? And I don't have it. I want it. I don't want you to have it. It's mine. It belongs to me. As opposed to the Baal Bitachon who says, everything I have is exactly what I need. Right now, at this moment, whatever I have, I need, right? Not only that, no one can take what's coming to me. If Hashem wants to give it to me, there's nobody who can take a slice of my pizza, right? They got their own pie. If they've got something that I wanted, it's not mine. Because I've got my own pizza and Hashem gives me exactly what I need and nobody can take what's coming to me. Another meter that's rooted in, in this character, in this lack of bitachon, is worry, right? Obviously. Excessive worriers, right? It comes from this sense that I can control everything. Right. And sometimes people who worry feel that by their worrying, they're actually doing something. Right. I'm I'm doing something. I'm making his But that's not true. Right. If there's something to worry about, you basically have two choices. If there's something you can do about it, get up and do something. Right. And if there's nothing you can do about it, then let go and let God. Then. You know, that's where we have to work on acceptance. That's where we have to work on bitachon. That Hashem knows what he's doing, even if it doesn't feel good, even if it doesn't intellectually seem good. Hashem only does good. And, you know, if we can't do anything to change it, we have to know where we end and God begins. And that's all part of bitachon. Because worry basically means you don't trust him. Now, somebody pointed out that during COVID, we certainly saw how people dealt with their worry, right? How do you manage without bitachon? How do you manage without belief in a higher power who's running the world? During COVID, alcoholism went haywire, right? Everything was closed except for the LCBO in Toronto, right? That had to remain open. Cannabis stores flourished, right? All of these things, because this is the way people deal with fear. 
So we have a choice in life. We can either have fear, as one of my friends said, or we can choose fear of heaven. Or again, Yirat Hashem, seeing Hashem in everything, understanding that he's running the world and he controls the world. And again, you know, the fundamental idea of bitachon, which we've studied before, is that it doesn't mean that we don't do anything. We make efforts, but bitachon is that the results of my efforts are not in my hands, right? I cannot control the results, but I can give my best efforts to try and make something go the way I want. And when it doesn't, that's when bitachon kicks in, or even while we're doing the efforts, we're doing it in a tranquil and serene way. If we're making the efforts and we're panicked and we're overdoing and we think that we're the ones in charge, then we have not partnered with God while we're making the efforts. Okay, so part of keeping Hashem in mind while you're making the efforts. Okay, we only have a few more minutes. Okay, back to anger again. So anger, as we know, is often linked to impatience, right? What does everybody say in Israel? Sablanut, sablanut, right? Patience, patience. Try saying that when you're trying to get on a bus. <laughs> They'll kill you. No, I'm kidding. What are you, Canadian or something? Just get on the bus. You have to... As one of my, I remember as a kid, I went to Israel to visit family, friends, and, and the mother who was, I think, Canadian, yeah, but they lived in Israel. She said, okay, Devorah, just remember when you, you go out there, you got to sharpen your elbows when you get out there to get on the bus. Sharpen your elbows. <laughs> um, okay, so we said that the word sovel means to tolerate, right? It comes, it's the same word as sovlanut, is tolerance. And a sabal is a porter, right? Remember that image of the porter who's carrying a heavy burden? And when it gets to be too much for him, he just throws it off his shoulders. That's called anger, right? I can't take it anymore. You're driving me crazy. I have to let it out. I have to scream. I have to do something, right? When I get angry, it means I can't tolerate you. I can't carry you anymore, right? But the definition of patience is to remain calm when things or people are not doing or going the way you want them to. <laughs> we cannot control other people. We might say this a thousand times and just don't get it. We can only control ourselves, right? So we can't control others. We can only control ourselves. We'd like to control other people. We'd like it to be that simple. We'd like to snap our fingers, right? And get the toddler to stop having a tantrum and listen to reason, right? Or the toddler who's in a larger body, you know, stop having an adult tantrum and listen to reason. But, you know, we can't control other people. We can only control ourselves. So, of course, there's lots of techniques for that, whether it's leaving the room, breathing deep, having the conversation another time, not, you know, addressing it in the other person's moment of meltdown and all of those other things, right? Okay. Um, I gave an example here of, you know, this person who's always late or, you know, she's making me late. He's driving too slowly. 
Oh, I wanted to show you this. This is what I wanted to put on the screen. Um, let me hold. You see that? Okay. When we get together in person, I'll give you a handout because I actually photocopied a lot of these. So this was printed that basically says these things are out of my control and there are things that are in my control. So out of my control, what people think, sorry, what people say, traffic, aging, others' actions, the weather, what people believe, others' opinions, and time. These are all things that are out of my control. What is in my control? My actions, my words, my self-care, my blessing, my boundaries, my hobbies, what I eat, my opinions, who I spend my time with, and my actions. Sorry, should have another copy. So everybody sees that? So this is just a reminder. Um, if you want one of these, I can put some out in my mailbox. For those of you who live nearby, you can put it on your fridge. But anyway, that's basically a reminder of the things that are out of our control. What other people think, what other people do, what other people believe, what other people say, right? To know the difference between what's in my control and what's out of my control is very important. And of course, for the things that are out of my control, that's where we need bitachon, right? That's where we need to recognize that these people are just puppets in Hashem's hands, right? Hashem is allowing them to say and do what they do because after all, they have free will. Now they have the free will to not do it, but they're not exercising that. So... They are a test. Do not adjust your TV set. This is just a test, right? The program will be back soon. Okay? So, gee whiz, it's already too late to get to the test part. But let me just end with the test part. When you have a mindset of bitachon, a bitachon mentality, that Hashem is in charge, that part of bitachon is tolerating other people's shortcomings, right? That Whoever's doing something is a puppet from Hashem. There's an incredible story. I wanted to look it up, but I uh, maybe I should. But it's a story about Henny Machlis, which for those of you who knew Aleha Hashalam, I actually knew her personally. I was gifted to have her as a friend when we lived in Israel. She unfortunately died very young, but she was known for her chesed and having hundreds of people for Shabbos, every Shabbos. But not just people, like the, the lowest levels of society, the people who were really nobody else had time for. And one of these people was a man who she had once served him homemade pizza. And uh, he really, really liked it. And he showed up at their house at 3 a.m. in the morning and knocked on their bedroom door. Their door was always open to find out the recipe for the pizza. And this is supposedly a story, supposedly, this is a story told by her husband, Mordechai Machlis, at her eulogy to, to indicate to her that this is what made her such a tzedekist, that he came. And of course, Mordechai, Rabbi Machlis, was not happy about this situation. But Henny from the bedroom said, I'll be out in a minute and I'll give you the pizza recipe. 
And the point is, for those of you who've been on my class, this was her primary response. This was not her secondary response. This was not, oh, go away. I can't believe you're here at three in the morning. What kind of a mashugana are you? Do not understand day and night what is going on? No, her husband explains this was her primary response. Mordecai, don't send him away. I'm coming. I'm bringing the recipe. Leave him alone. Everything's fine. <laughs> so, yeah, this is called a very high madrega. But this is a person who understands not why is he doing this to me, but why is he doing this to me? This is an opportunity for me to grow. This is an opportunity for me to be greater. So you know what? I will end now at 11 o'clock. And next week, God willing, if I forget, remind me, we're just going to talk a little bit more about tests, which is anyway relevant because Avram's tests continue from this very first one, Lech Lecha, to finding the land in famine, to going down to Egypt and having his wife kidnapped from him. And the Rambam and Rashi, have a, a, they, they agree on many of the tests. They have a few that are different. But basically, we will talk about this idea of test in light of bitachon and what we learn from our avos and imahos. So thank you so much for listening today. I will stay.